Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Pastor Kirk is preaching his way through the book of Philippians, and we're going to be continuing that today. But perhaps you're looking for a church. You live in Northwest Arkansas, and you're trying to find a place where you can connect with other believers. Let me invite you to join us at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We meet on Sundays at 1030 in the morning, and we would love for you to join us. Now, if you have questions about the church, call us at 479-442-4634 or check us out online at calvaryfayetteville.com. Again, Pastor Kirk is in the book of Philippians as we continue our journey through God's Word. Today, we're looking at a message entitled, Lights in a Twisted Generation. And we'll be listening as he shares from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And so my prayer for each of us is that God will speak to us today as I share with you a message entitled, Lights in a Twisted Generation. That uh, title will become more clear as we work through the text today. We could also call this message, Working Out What God Has Worked In. And so we're making our way through the book of Philippians, and I hope and pray that last week's gospel truth of of Christ's self-humiliation, of Jesus humbling himself and becoming a servant, and even submitting himself to a horrible death, even death on a cross, and then the absolute super-exaltation as the Father highly exalted him through the resurrection, through the ascension, through a coronation in heaven, and finally through his presence today as our high priest, uh, the one who has sent the Holy Spirit, the one who hears our prayers, the one who gives us strength. And as the Father has super exalted him, that these thoughts have gripped your heart this week, that the Holy Spirit has brought it off into mind and caused you to marvel maybe even more than you ever have about just exactly what it was that Jesus has done for you and me. Now, Paul is appealing to this church in Philippi uh, to uh, live up to who they are as God's children. He is appealing to these believers. This is a church that is experiencing hardship and persecution from without, from the Roman Empire that uh, seeks to subdue them and cause them to worship and to bow down to Caesar rather than Christ. And a church that is also struggling to some degree uh, with, uh, with some struggles internally. Now, we said at the beginning that this was not a troubled church like Corinth, that had open sin being flaunted. This is not a church uh, like some of the churches around Colossae that were struggling with, uh, with a matter of doctrine and, and the pure gospel. But this was a church that had some degree of conflict within, some degree of, of members not walking in total unity uh, as they needed to. So Paul is appealing to them to live in the unity that can only be provided by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, because churches don't have that today, by and large, because very few churches in America have the kind of unity that Paul is calling for here, understand we try to build unity in other ways. We try man's idea of having some kind of demographic unity. We want to be a young, young church, and we want to appeal just to young people because that way we would all see things the same way. Well, you tell me, how many young people do you know that ever see things one way? Those of you that have ever had more than one child know that doesn't happen, right? So the idea that we could demographically cause our church uh, to demonstrate unity that would cause the world to turn to Christ, that's a whole false idea. Some try denominational unity, but denominations tear apart all the time. We try all these things. Some try through style of worship to build a unity. Everybody singing the old southern gospel or everybody singing uh, high church hymns or everybody singing modern day praise and worship. But I want to tell you, those things may sound like you're in unity. It may even be blessed with beautiful harmony in the melodies that we sing, but it doesn't necessarily shape hearts to walk together. Paul is talking about a unity that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can, can foster in people's lives. He's basically telling them, you know, I'm calling you to live supernaturally. And that may in itself frustrate you. You think, how can I live supernaturally? I'm a human being. I still struggle with sin. And certainly that's true. That's true about all of us. But guess what? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have God living in you. And that is your confidence, your hope of glory. And with Christ living in you, if you will humble yourself and bow down to the Holy Spirit within you and to the Jesus who guides you and who died for you, and if you will do that, and if you will do that, and if you will do that, and if I will do that, guess what? We're going to live supernaturally, supernaturally united lives. And Paul is saying, this is what Philippi needs. It is also what Fayetteville, Farmington, and Springdale needs. Now, he challenged them in chapter 1 to stand firm in one spirit and then in one mind to strive for the faith of the gospel. Stand your ground on the word of God. Advance the gospel of Christ, but do it together with one mind, united, side by side. And so he continues that thought, and he gives us the example of Jesus. We talked about it the last two weeks. The hymn of Christ, that passage that Pastor Dan read to begin the service today, that wonderful passage about how Jesus left heaven, humbled himself, but then was exalted by the Father. This hymn, was evidently a hymn that's been sung since the very earliest days of the church. And Paul included it here. Now listen, this is what Kent Hughes had to say about that hymn, about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. He said, the grandeur of all of this is stunning. 
And knowing how Paul often follows theology, teaching of truth, with doxology, with a, a phrase or a, a passage of praise, knowing how Paul often follows theology with doxology, we might expect a song of praise or a glorious benediction at this point. But not this time, because Paul, now listen to this, has raised this high Christology, this high teaching of Christ, with an eye to ground level practicality. Rather than writing for us a benediction of praise in response to this great exaltation of Christ and the coming day when every tongue will confess him and every knee will bow before him, every tongue confessing him, some with a shout of victory, others with a cry of anguish. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But instead of a benediction of praise, he makes an application with ground-level practicality. This is Christianity in real boot leather. This is down in the nitty-gritty drama of where you live and where I live. And that's why he begins the next section, these next verses, with the word, therefore. We encountered it several times, right? When, when Paul says, therefore, when the scripture says, therefore, it means that what he's about to say is based on what he has just said. And based on how Jesus humbled himself and submitted himself to the Father and the Father's will, we must do the same. And so we're going to read verses 12 through 18 for our text today, but here's how we're going to do that. Instead of me reading it all the way through and going back and rereading it with my points, we'll read it with the points. First of all, verses 12 through verse 13, and the three points I'll bring out to you today, the first one taking most of our time, number two and number three taking less time, Understand, these are the three imperatives in this passage. You remember what an imperative is? It's a command. These are in the imperative mood in the Greek language. That means these are the marching orders. And everything between that helps explain it and helps us to understand it. Verses 12 and 13, imperative number one is this, work out your own salvation and do it with fear and trembling. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, in other words, as you have always been good to follow my directions, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. The command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want to be the first to say to you, 
that that phrase, that command, has often led to wrong conclusions. Oftentimes, it has been misunderstood, misinterpreted, not only creating confusion, but for some, even a false understanding of the gospel. There are people in church today singing praises to the Lord who, because they have a misunderstanding of this command of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because they misunderstand that, they've misunderstood the gospel, and though they are in church today, they are on their way to hell. And there are people in hell today that have misunderstood what the apostle is saying in this passage. You remember, to understand Scripture, you always have to compare Scripture with Scripture. You never take one statement, one verse, one thought, and build a whole doctrine or understanding around that one thought, especially if you find that it conflicts other passages of truth. Now, I believe what Paul is saying in this passage, or in this phrase, this first command, he alluded to in chapter 1 in verse 6, where he told us that he was convinced that the one who began a good work in you is going to finish that work in the day of Christ. The one who began to do a good work in you is going to finish that work. He's going to complete that work at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, he alluded to that, that God finishes what he starts. And he gets over here to verse 12 and 13, and he tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He is helping us to understand how he completes what he starts, something that is an ongoing work in your life right now if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand what he means by this, I think it's especially helpful to take a few minutes to explain what he does not mean. Sometimes the best way to know what God is saying is to understand what he is not saying, okay? So this phrase, work out your own salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling can be misinterpreted and misunderstood. Three things he is not saying. So don't go down that road. Three things he is not saying. He is not teaching a works salvation. He is not teaching here that your work will get you to heaven. If he were saying that here, then he would be contradicting what he has said in the book of Romans, what he has said in the book of Ephesians, what virtually he has said in every other letter that he wrote, including this very one that we know as Philippians. He tells us, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast about it or brag about it. Salvation is not a work salvation. He's not teaching here 
God does his part and you do your part. And if you and God can just join hands together, you'll get this saved thing done in your life. That's not what he's saying. It's not God's part, your part. It is all of God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, taught in scripture alone, for God's glory alone. The only salvation that gets someone to heaven is the salvation that God accomplished on the cross and that God is accomplishing in people's lives today. He's not teaching a work salvation, otherwise the entire message of the Bible is undermined and it falls into disarray and confusion. He's not talking about a work salvation. Secondly, he is not talking about some kind of customized salvation. Now, what does that mean? Well, we live in the days of customization, do we not? You want to subscribe to Netflix? Well, you go online and you customize the, what you want to see, what you're looking for, and you will have a customized um, agenda for you. You will have a customized uh, list of movies or programs that might suit your taste. We also live in the days of personalization, where people personalize everything. Your music selection. Nobody, well, except it's kind of becoming a trend, nobody goes and buys the whole album anymore. You remember what an album was for you young people? That was this round thing. And you put it on a, on a turntable and set a needle on it, and, and that's how you got your music. Nowadays, you just pick the song you like. You go to Pandora, you go to Spotify. You personalize, customize everything. Well, when it says, work out your own salvation, some might interpret that to be customized salvation, that God customizes his gift of eternal life based on you and me and what we like, and, and, and the gospel will be presented to you in a way that's pleasing to you. I want to tell you something. A gospel that is pleasing to a lost person is not a gospel. If the gospel of Jesus Christ does not offend the lost person, it's not the pure gospel. Why is that? Because a lost person is the enemy of God. Their heart is at war with God. And so when a church does everything it can do to make its worship, to make its services, to make the word of God pleasant, to make the message uh, unoffensive or inoffensive or whatever's the right way to say that, to make it acceptable and pleasing to people is to water it down to the point that it will not save a soul. God doesn't customize his gospel for you. God doesn't personalize it for you. In fact, the Bible refers to our common salvation. Did you know that? Jude, the brother of Jesus, said this in Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you 
to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Because if you don't contend for the faith, the faith that is the true faith of God, and if you don't do that, 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 and if I don't do that, then we don't have a common salvation. The faith is the teaching of the Word of God. And understand, it's not going to be pleasing to a lost person to hear the message of salvation, the message of sin, the message that you're guilty and that you deserve hell and hell is waiting for you. And understand, you can't take the edge off of that. Only God takes the edge off of that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Only God can convict lost people. Only God can soften rock, stone-hearted hearts. Only God can make a difference. Now, you and I need to be loving. We need to be compassionate. We need to make an appeal. But understand, we can't change the common salvation. This is not, this is not some kind of work salvation he's talking about. It is not some kind of customized salvation. And number three, it is not a fear-based salvation. Even though hell is something to fear, when he says that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, he does not mean that we live in doubt and fear. He's not suggesting that God, it is God's will that we live in fear and doubt, always wondering, always questioning, have I done enough to be saved? Understand that this term, fear and trembling, you will encounter it several times in Scripture. But it means the same thing. Fear and trembling is not the idea of, of doubt and being scared. Fear and trembling means to do so with reverence and awe. In adoration. Work out your own salvation with reverence and awe and adoration to God. So that is, not, is what Paul is not saying. So to help you understand what he is saying, let me remind you of something else we've talked about. I've alluded to it. I don't remember if we've ever had it on a screen before. But understand that when you read about salvation about salvation, especially in the New Testament, that there are three aspects of salvation, three perspectives of salvation, three aspects. First of all, there is the past tense, then there is the present tense, and then there is the future tense of salvation. What is the past tense of salvation? The past tense is this. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. From the penalty. What is the penalty for sin? It's death in hell, right? Separation from God. Well, listen. When God saved you, whenever that took place, for me it happened when I was nine years old. In a revival meeting, I believe it was on a Wednesday night, and uh, I was nine years old. It was in the month of November, our fall revival, that I trusted Christ as my Savior. At that point in time, 
I was saved, I was delivered, I was set free from the penalty of sin. No longer was hell my destiny and my future. Instead, heaven was my destiny and my future. Now, Paul doesn't often use the term salvation looking backwards to the moment of salvation, the past tense of salvation. Now, listen, you and I, on the other hand, that's what we oftentimes only look at. All we think about is when I was saved, okay? Paul, when he refers back to the day of our conversion, the day of the new birth in our lives, he usually calls that justification. That's another word for salvation, but it's a word meaning that you have been declared innocent, okay? That, you, that the penalty for your sins has, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. The prison door has swung open. The, the uh, sentence has been paid already. You have been justified. Now, sometimes he'll refer to salvation in that past tense, but usually he'll call it justification. The past tense of salvation is once for all, okay? Once for all. Once for all. But there is the present tense of salvation. The present tense of salvation. And the present tense of salvation is this. We who have been saved from the penalty of sin are now, day by day, being saved from the power of sin. Even though we have been saved from sin's penalty, doesn't mean that we were instantly saved from sin's power. We still have the old man of sin, right? We still struggle. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. The thing that I would do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, those things, I struggle. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Have you ever felt that? If you have never felt that and cried out words, something like that to God, then you're missing the whole boat of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Being saved from the power of sin. We sometimes refer to that in the New Testament as sanctification. What does it mean? It means that our lives are doing battle with sin, but unlike before we were born again, when we had no power against sin, sin and the devil always won the battle. Now, because of the Holy Spirit inside, I can win the battle. And that's why Paul is saying to the Philippians, listen, you, you need to be living supernatural lives, lives that are guided by the Spirit, not by the flesh, not grumbling and complaining, but instead seeking what's best for each other and caring about each other more than yourselves. That kind of supernatural living comes from being saved from, being delivered from the power of sin in your life. That is a daily struggle. It is a daily surrender to God. Paul talked about that so many times, but he especially talked about it in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, fully, holy, and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. He's talking about how you live as Christians. Surrender yourselves 
Uh, this is your spiritual worship of God. Do not be conformed to this world any longer. Don't be like the world. Instead, be transformed, be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove, that you may discern, live out, and give testimony to what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. There's also the future tense of salvation. We will be saved from the presence of sin. Only in death or the rapture are we delivered from the presence of sin. If you want to try to find a church that's not full of sinners, you need to look elsewhere because Calvary ain't it. Folks, that's funny. That was funny. It's truthful, but it was funny. This ain't it. If you're looking for the perfect church, you ain't never going to find it. And if you do find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it all up. That's just the way that is. We cannot escape the presence of sin. Now listen, if you're seeking to walk with Christ, yes, you can avoid much of sin, you can make wise choices about what you allow your mind to feed on, what you read, what you watch, where you go, who you spend time with, because there's always the influence of evil around, and to a certain degree, if you walk wise and walk with the Lord, you will avoid as much of that stuff as you can, but you'll never get fully away from it till you die or till Jesus calls you home through the rapture. Now, that's why he said back in chapter 1, verse 6, that uh, we, what God started when he saved you, he will complete at the day of Jesus Christ. That complete and full salvation is past, present, and future. Total salvation, full salvation, will not be experienced till we are in the presence of the Lord. Now, shake your he head and tell me that you've got that. Do you understand what we're saying? It's very important, very important. Because when he says, gives this first command, this first imperative, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's talking about present tense salvation. He's not talking about the past tense. Jesus paid for all of that. He's talking about the present tense where you allow Jesus to work in you. And now that you are a child of God, now that you have the indwelling spirit, now that you can understand the word of God, now that you can avail yourself of, of the uh, comradeship of brothers and sisters in Christ, being a true family of God in the church, now it's time for you to work hand in hand with the Lord. Now you offered nothing you brought nothing to the table for your new birth experience except the sin that made it necessary. You didn't contribute anything. But this present tense of salvation, this learning to become more like Christ, this conforming your life in line with Jesus, it's Christ in you, the assurance of glory. As, as you walk closer with Christ, you have to make effort. You have to make effort. It's not the work of the flesh. Even this effort, though, comes 
from God. Now keep in mind, salvation is not just an inward emotion. It's not just because you can remember when you walked the aisle or when you gave your life to Jesus. If it's true, if it's genuine, there will be life change. Sometimes it is painfully slow, but there will be life change. And this life change is what he's talking about here. Now notice, he says, verse 13, for it is God who works in you. So even though you have to cooperate with the Spirit, you have to daily surrender and humble yourself, even as Jesus did, he was the example, it requires effort on your part, but understand this about your effort. It is not a grin and bear it thing that you have to do in your feeble strength. Remember, God is at work in you. God is in you, and he works in you. Verse 13 says, how does he work in you? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, you can go back to sleep after this. If everybody would focus in and hear what I'm about to say in the next 60 seconds. If you have truly been born again, if you have truly experienced the past tense of salvation where the penalty of sin was taken away, home in heaven promised to you. The only way you experienced that was by faith. And Ephesians 2 says that faith didn't come from you. It came from God. So even your faith was God's gift to you. Okay? Even your faith was something God gave you, a precious gift. Without it, you could not have been saved. But I want to tell you, if you were saved by God's grace in the past and by God's faith, that gift from him, that faith doesn't just go away. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't expire. But that faith continues to work inside you. That if you've truly been born again, understand this. A part of what changed in you is that you were given, and God is still giving to you, the will and the ability to follow him, to work for him. And this working out your own salvation this is the desire to do God's will and the commitment to do God's will in your life. Now, here's what I want you to hear. If you do not have that desire to follow Christ daily, if you do not have that motivation to make God's choices in your career, in your family life, in your church life. If you do not have that will, that desire, understand you need to take careful evaluation of whether or not you were ever born again. Because it says here that as you work out your own salvation, you do it with fear and trembling, and you remember it is God working in you and through you to help you be obedient to grow in faith, to live the Christ life, 
And God not only gives you the will to do that, he gives you the power to do it. He enables you with divine enablement. Here's what Augustine said about that in the early days of the church. Our deeds are working out of our salvation. What was on the inside, we're working it out in the way that we live, in our hands and our feet and our eyes and our voices. Our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them. But remember this, they are also God's because of His grace causing our free will to produce them. God makes us do what He pleases by making us desire what we would not desire in our natural flesh. Did you get that? It is your choice because God has given you a free will, but it is a free will that can only be expressed under the direction and the guidance of God himself. It is God who causes us to will to be what he wants us to be and to do what he wants us to do. Let me give you a key truth here, and it's back actually a working definition. Now, you know what grace is, right? Salvation is by grace alone. It is God's unmerited, undeserved favor on our behalf. That's how we usually define it. Well, let me give you another definition, not a contrary one, but a working definition of what that looks like. Grace is the desire and the power to do God's will. Grace is the desire and the power to do God's will. Without God's grace, without God's love and mercy and favor towards you, you would neither desire nor be able to do God's will. But because of His grace, you do have that desire and you do have that power. All right, that's the first imperative. I said the next two would be much shorter. I hope you understand when he says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's talking about how you live day to day as a professing child of God in this world. Conforming your life to Christ, growing, maturing in faith, being more faithful to God's house and God's people, all of the above. Okay, the second uh, imperative, the second command comes in verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This too is the word of the Lord. All right. Second command, don't be grumblers or arguers. Stop your grumbling. Stop complaining. Stop arguing. Evidently, we have here touched on 
what was some of the problem in Philippians in, in Philippi? Remember, they were under persecution from without, but they were having some conflict, some degree of conflict within. He's going to touch on that again in the coming chapters, where he's going to actually name two women of the church and tell them, "Listen, you two, you need to get along. You need to get along." Now, this seems like he's shifting gears altogether, but he's not. He's not. He said, work out your own salvation, mainly because you can't work anybody else's out for them. We try, don't we? Don't we try to guilt one another into being something that we want them to be? But it doesn't say, work out your neighbors, your husbands, your wife, your kids' salvation for them. I'm so guilty of that. If you would just let me work out your salvation for you, we'd have a perfect church. But folks, I can't get my own act together. How can I help you get yours together? I struggle also. Work out your own salvation. But understand, he's not suggesting that you do that in a silo. That you do that in isolation. Remember, everything in the New Testament is about life and community in the church. In the church. And we are the church. And he's talking here about the church. He's talking to a church. And he talks about you work out your own salvation. You work out your own salvation. You work out your own salvation. You work out yours. You work out. Because we can only individually control our own lives, right? But then understand you live that out in community. And so now he's back to speaking to the group. Don't be grumblers, plural. Don't be arguers. Don't always be fault-finding. Now, what we don't realize, and I wish we had time to go into this because it's, 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 it's good. But in those verses, 14 through 17, he actually refers back to the Old Testament twice. Twice. When he talks about don't grumble and don't dispute, don't argue, don't, don't be complainers. That's one reference to the Old Testament nation of Israel. The other is when he talks about being poured out as a drink offering. That refers back to the Old Testament as well. Now, what does he say? Let me just mention very quickly so that you'll understand the context here of why he says this. Don't be grumbling and disputing with each other. When the children of Israel, you remember that, that the church through history has been the people of God. The people of God in the world. It started off with Adam and Eve. That was the first church. Then the uh, descendants of Adam and Eve through Seth, these chosen people. Then the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we have these Israelites, some three million of them, living in bondage down in Egypt, who God calls out of Egypt, and God delivers them out of slavery and bondage. That experience of deliverance, calling them out, was symbolic to our past tense of salvation when he saved us from the penalty of sin. He called us out of the bondage of this world. And it was marked... Uh, as an illustration by their passing through the Red Sea, having an appearance of passing through the water in the same way that baptism symbolizes the break from our old life, committing our lives to walk with Christ going forward. But the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Why? 
It was only a, a journey that should have taken six or eight weeks at the most to get to the promised land. It took them 40 years. Why? Because they were grumblers. They were constantly disputing. They were complainers. They fell into idolatry. They weren't growing in their commitment to God. They were looking for only to have their bellies filled and, and to have uh, their day-to-day -day needs, although Jesus, although God was providing for them. But this grumbling and complaining. Now, this is a word, uh, this grumbling is only used a couple of times in the New Testament, and this is the only time by the Apostle Paul. Now, interestingly enough, in the Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word grumbling is the word that's used throughout the Old Testament when it's talking about the children of Israel. And the word there we read in, in, in our Bibles is murmuring, murmur. It's an onomatopoeic word, which means it is a word that sounds like what it sounded like, murmur, 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 you know. It's kind of like being a bunch of extras in a movie. All you have to do is stand back there and look at one of them and say, murmur, 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 Because the whole idea is people can't discern the, the distinction, but God could. They were constantly complaining. And, and what Paul is saying here, this is what one scholar has said, Frank Thielman, Implicit in this command not to grumble or complain or argue is the assumption that the believing community in Philippi is part of a new people of God that stands in continuity with biblical Israel and should learn from its example. God killed those people off because they grumbled so much. And we are the new Israel today. They were the people of God who failed in their calling. And that's why Jesus had to come. And that's why he was the servant. That's why he was the true Israel. And that's why we, the followers of Christ, are the body of Christ. And we are true Israel today. And he's saying to churches today, he's saying to Philippi today, he's saying to Calvary today, don't be grumblers, complainers, and arguers like they were. They failed in their calling. Don't you fail. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do so in community with each other, not being a church of, of fault finders. In Moses' final words to those people in the wilderness, actually to their descendants, their children, he was speaking about their forefathers. And he is singing this final song of Moses at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, just before they crossed uh, the Jericho into the promised land under Joshua. This is what Moses said. The rock, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They, speaking of your forefathers, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. It's not a mistake that Paul, thousands of years later, 
says to the Philippian believers, you are, in essence, the new Israel. Don't be grumblers and complainers that were disowned by God. He called them out. He worked miracles among them, but he disowned them. They, they are no longer his children because they are blemished. And then he says they are a crooked and twisted generation. And what does he say in verses 14 through 17? That if you will live there in Philippi before the onlooking eyes of a pagan world who doesn't believe in Jesus, if you'll live lives without grumbling and planning, living in unity and harmony with each other, he said, you'll not become a perverted and twisted generation like your forefathers. Instead, you will be faithful. You will be shining lights in a dark world, in a twisted and a perverted, a perverted generation. This is what you ought to be. You ought to be a witness to them instead of being one of them. Now, I know that for those of you that have jobs and are still working, or those of you that can remember your working world and your working experience, that almost anywhere and everywhere today, the world is filled with grumblers and complainers, is it not? Stand over the back fence and visit with your neighbor. It won't take very long. If somebody's complaining about something, either you or them. But he's saying to this, if you, the challenge, if you will not do that, well, he's saying here's the godly results. You will be blameless, innocent, without blemish. You will shine as lights in a perverted world. And you will be found faithfully holding fast to the word of life. Okay, folks, that's what God calls us to. The very last imperative, the last command is the last verse. Verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He just told them if he has to pour out his life as a drink offering, if he dies in this prison, if he is beheaded by Caesar, that he is still going to rejoice and be glad because of the work God is doing in their lives. And he says, likewise, whatever happens to me and whatever happens to you, be glad, rejoice, rejoice with me because nothing's going to happen to you that was not God's will. Nothing's going to happen in you that was contrary to the plan of God. God is in control. God is the one on the throne. And you need to rejoice that, that God's redemptive work is being done in the world, and you get to be a part of it. So whatever you experience, whatever you face, whatever it is that you are called to go through by God, do so with a glad heart. Do so rejoicing. Why? Because everybody that doesn't know Christ, when they face death or persecution, when they face hardship, they cry and they whine and they complain. But you're the people of God. So whatever it is, whatever is in your future, it is a future 
that is known by God and that is ordained by God and that will result in glory to God. Rejoicing, joy, is a major theme of this letter. There are 104 verses in the book of Philippians. 16 times he refers to joy and rejoicing. Over 15% joy and rejoicing. How will that change the world? It changes the world because they see that our hope is not fixed on things that are temporary. Their hope, our confidence, is based on things eternal. Work out what God is working in you. You say you're a person of faith. You say that Jesus lives in your heart. You say you've been born again. You say that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Let it show. How do you let it show? Yes, certainly by saying it. That's part of it. But you know what? Words are cheap. People can say anything. How does it show up in your day-to-day choices? Are you working out your salvation with reverence and awe? Is Christ being displayed to a lost and dying world by your words, your actions, your loves? Are you a shining light illuminating Christ in this dark, perverse, twisted world in which we live? Peter challenged us and he said, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a challenge from your word. What a challenge from the apostle. May we not be just Christians in name only, in word only. May we truly exemplify what that means. Help us to become more like Jesus every day. Help us to fight sin in our lives. Help us to show Jesus to the world around us, to our family, our friends, those that we work with. Help us to be shining lights in a dark, perverted, twisted world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.